you'll turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, we'll continue our journey through this letter. Rich with gospel glory, the foundations of the Christian faith, a gospel that we believe and that we profess and proclaim together, filled chapters 1 through 3 with so many rich passages of just praising God and celebrating the greatness of His grace to us in Christ, every spiritual blessing that comes to us through the Lord Jesus and what He's accomplished for us. And then in chapter 4, he began a, a new section of this letter, and the second half of the letter really is about gospel-shaped living. Chapters 1 through 3 is what we believe. It's the gospel we profess. And chapters 4 through 6 are how the gospel looks when his people live it out. When we live out the gospel that we believe, it looks something like this. And so these chapters are rich with ethical instructions and and commands from the Lord Jesus to his church. And so we should uh, listen and posture ourselves in that way as what we receive and what we hear in these verses are commands from our King, Jesus, as to how we must live out the calling with which we have been called. Our verses last week, verses 1 through 6, Paul uh, began a focus on the unity of the church. And again, he reminded us of the foundational unity that Christ purchased for his people and indeed the Spirit has gifted to his people uh, in, in this sort of sevenfold oneness that he gave us in, verses, uh, in verse 4. He repeats seven times and seven ways in which the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, is one. So you can see that in verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. And so this sevenfold oneness is then a, a fullness, a picture of the completeness of the body of Christ Because of what Christ has accomplished in his death and resurrection and what the spirit has gifted to us. And so the body is truly one. The church is truly one. And yet there is a cultivating that has to happen. There there is work to be done on the part of his people to actually live out that unity. Or perhaps it's better to say to grow into that unity. Like a hand-me-down shirt that doesn't quite fit. It's a little baggy. You, it, it's yours. The shirt's been given to you, but it, it doesn't fit quite right. And you have to grow into it. It's in that same way that Christ has gifted to his church unity. And we don't quite fit it yet. We have to grow up into this unity. And so he continues in our verses today with the theme of unity. And yet he will... Uh, he, he, he turns a corner and, and changes the focus just a bit. He changes the focus here to the God-given pur- purpose of each one, that is, each member of the body of Christ. So as he's been speaking corporately of the oneness, the unity of the church of Jesus Christ, he begins to focus here on how each individual member of that body is to play the role that God has given to them. And so let's read together verses 7 through 16. I will read and you follow along. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning of verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says... 
When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May God bless this reading of his word, and may he grant us ears to hear the truth that he has for us here. I'm titling the message, When Each Part is Working Properly, based on that phrase, Uh, at the end of uh, of verse 16. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And we all know how bodies work. At least we have vague ideas of how bodies work. I'm not suggesting we all have medical expertise. But we know a great deal about how God has made our bodies to work. And, And when each part of the body, each organ and each artery and each cell and each part of the body is performing its function, then the body works together. And conversely, if something goes wrong, if some part of the body decides to rebel and to not cooperate and to not carry out its assigned and intended role, things go badly. We don't always know what is going on, but we can tell immediately something is not right with our bodies. And so we have doctors and a large medical industry for the purpose of sort of figuring that stuff out and getting us to to figure, okay, here's what's going on. Here's the part that's not working right. Maybe we can fix it. Maybe we can tweak it. Maybe we can remove it at times in order to get the body back to where it's working together. And so Paul begins to use this analogy, this metaphor of a physical body to describe how the church of Jesus Christ should work together. And again, focusing on individuals within that body. Well, in these verses, we see three things that Christ gives to his church. Three things that he gives. Number one, Christ gives gifts. Christ gives gifts to his church. The, ver- the, the passage begins with, with the conjunction, but. You see verse 7, but grace was given. And so that reminds us that what came before it in verses 1 through 6 was this focus on the corporate unity of the church. You're all one body, one faith, one bond, one spirit, etc. And yet, right, so there's a, 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 a contrast here, but grace was given to each one. Grace was given to each one. And I would add grace is given in unique and diverse ways according to. To God's will. 
We find passages uh, that express similar truths in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in Romans chapter 12, indeed a little bit in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. These are places where Paul speaks of gifts that God sovereignly gives to his church, to members of his church, and they are to use those gifts for the good of the body. You can see the emphasis on on the gifts of Christ throughout these verses. In verse 7, as we've already seen there, it says grace was given. In verse 8, as Paul is is quoting from Psalm 68, he says uh, that when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So there's again Christ giving gifts to his church. And then down a little bit in verse 11, as he expands, and we'll get to this point later, he says, and he gave Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, all right? So the giving of Christ is the focus of these verses, and particularly the gifts that he gives to each Christian, to each member of his body. And he gives them each a role to play. I want you to notice that Paul is using the same kind of language and the same concept here that he used of himself and his own ministry as an apostle back in chapter 3. If you look at the beginning of chapter 3, he introduces himself, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. The stewardship of grace that was given to me for you. He is speaking of his own apostleship, of his ministry to the Gentiles, and he speaks of it as grace that was given. And then he says again, uh, I was made a minister of this gospel according to the measure of Christ's, uh, excuse me, uh, according to the gift of God's grace. See down in verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. So what's God's grace doing in that verse? It's entrusting him with a task. It's giving him a particular ministry to carry out. And then in verse 8, to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. What grace? You see it next. To preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. So Paul's speaking here of the grace of God given to him as a particular calling in ministry, a particular service to give to the body of Christ. And he applies that same language and concept here in chapter 4 to each Christian, to each individual Christian, each member of the body of Christ. Look, grace was given to each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. To each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, Christ gives differently. He gives a different measure of his grace in these tasks, in these services, to different members of his body. And he sovereignly then bestows whichever gifts and however many gifts or however few gifts or however much giftedness to each member of his body, the church. And so he is sovereign in the dispensing of these gifts. And the grace that Christ has given to each one is a function of, uh, is, is the function in the body. It, it's a ministry calling to carry out for the sake of the collective good of the church. So in other words, every Christian has an assignment from Christ in his church. You have an assignment from Christ in his church to serve 
his body to build up his people. He supports this idea of Christ having given gifts to his church by, by quoting Psalm 68, 18. So you see there in verse 8, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And he pictures here Christ as a conquering general. So this general has been through a fierce battle, and he's won a decisive victory. And now he's leading his armies up into the, the camp of the enemy, and he's gathered the spoils of war, if you will, and now he's dividing up the spoils among his troops. It's this picture of Christ, the conquering captain, who is now giving the gifts of these spoils to his people. And so he, he quotes this as a way of showing this is what Christ has done to his, for his church. He has conquered the powers of evil. He has covered our sins, defeated death and the devil, risen from the dead. And now he has ascended to the heavenly places. He has ascended to this throne of authority. And from this place of authority, he sovereignly dispenses the spoils of his victory. The, the gifts of the Spirit to his church. Now we get some interesting we get an interesting sort of parentheses here in verse 9. So he begins to sort of it's a bit of a digression to sort of explain what he means by the quotation in Psalm 68 when he ascended on high he led a captive he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men and then he sort of in parentheses sort of says okay in saying he ascended look at this verse what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions the, the earth that is the earth he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So Christ's descension, lest we get off into too much of a rabbit trail or think that he's saying something really odd here, Christ's descent here is simply a way of expressing the journey of Christ in his incarnation. He was in the heavens with God, and in his incarnation he journeyed to the earth. So the lower regions of the earth is simply to distinguish it from the heavens, which are seen and, and regarded as high above the earth. That's the way that the Jewish uh, mind would have, would have conceived of the heavens as this high up realm, right? So he descended. That means he came down to the earth in his incarnation. And then his ascension is his journey back to the heavenlies after his resurrection. And essentially, most importantly, to his seat of power. In the heavens. This is what Paul is emphasizing here. We should dismiss any notion of Christ descending into hell. Some people take this verse to mean that, that when it says he descended, we get this idea that Jesus somehow went down into hell, perhaps during the couple of day period between his death and his resurrection. Maybe he went to hell. Some people, in fact, use 1 Peter chapter 3. I can't remember the exact verse to sort as though maybe that supports that, where it says he, uh, he announced to the captives in prison. Um, I don't think that's what is in view here. Uh, and, and again, if, if there's a big theological thing going on here with Christ's descent into hell, it would be a strange way for Paul to communicate it because his emphasis is not on his descent. It's on his ascension. The emphasis is Christ has conquered. Christ has ascended to the seat of authority. And from that place of elevated power, he has given gifts to his church. So we need to not get caught up in uh, rabbit trails about what that lower parts of the earth thing might mean. I think it simply means he came down to earth in his incarnation, and then after his resurrection, he ascended into the heavens. 
where he sits in power and authority. And so he, in his place of authority, has given gifts to the church. I've already mentioned Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Peter 4, where he lists some gifts. We have gifts of teaching and gifts of exhortation and gifts of mercy and gifts of hospitality and gifts of evangelism and gifts of all kinds of various things. And none of the gifts are identical. The, the list, none of the lists are identical. They don't say the same, the same number of gifts. They don't even always say the same gifts at all. So I don't believe that the lists of giftings in these New Testament passages are intended to be an exhaustive list of all the ways that Christ might gift his church. So perhaps you've been through, as I grew up in, in the church, um, there were every year or two, it seemed like there was an emphasis on discovering your spiritual gift. And there would be a test. We call them spiritual gift inventories. Anybody ever take these kind of things before? So we take these tests and answer questions. What would I do in this kind of situation? And what is my instinct there? And then they go, congratulations, your spiritual gift is exhortation or whatever it is, right? Um, and I'm not saying that those things are all bad. It's good. It might be helpful to kind of help us figure out even how we're wired and some of the ways that maybe God uh, has inclined us to be. But I think it boxes in the Holy Spirit. It's like this is the way that God can gift his people and only this. And we need to think of these things not as a, there's a list of 14 gifts that are possible and you have to figure out which of the 14 gifts you have. Christ can sovereignly and does sovereignly gift his people however he chooses. Whenever he chooses, in whatever situation he chooses, to whatever extent that he chooses. So I don't, I don't think we need to be careful not to like overly rigidly define the parameters of what these spiritual gifts are. And more importantly, we need to regard and remember the purpose of the gifts. Christ gave gifts not so that each member could feel better about himself. Not so that each member would have a, a sort of a, a, a place to shine. But, verse 13... For the building up, that's not verse 13, for the building up of the body of Christ. It, it's the collective corporate good of the people of God that he intends by the individual gifts that he gives. So in other words, as we consider the ways that God has gifted us, the passions that he's placed into our hearts, the opportunities he's put in front of us, we should consider, sure, do I desire this? Do I think I'm a good fit for this? But even more than that, we should consider, will this serve the body? Is this particular service something that would benefit the church collectively? That's how we ought to come to think about these gifts. So with these diversities of gifts, strengths, and passions, we are to invest in each other, in discipling one another. And to say again, as I've shared a number of times, Mark Dever's definition of discipling is simply helping others follow Jesus. So we should ask ourselves that question. How can I help my brother or my sister in Christ follow Jesus? And we should have one another in our local church in mind when we ask ourselves that question. How can I help my sister or my brother follow Jesus? And then we should take active steps to try to do that very thing in whatever ways that we can. Christ gives gifts to his church. Number two, Christ gives leaders to his church. Christ gives leaders to the church. 
He changes his focus yet again a little bit here in verse 11 and begins to speak not so much of the gifts themselves, but of a few particular kinds of people that God empowers and entrusts to his church. Look at verse 11. And he gave, once again, the giving of Christ. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Shepherds and teachers is closely linked grammatically. Most uh, scholars and linguists here think that shepherds and teachers is not two separate offices or roles, but one role. So apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherd teachers, pastor teachers. So that so we probably have four offices or leaders here in view uh, in verse 11. And so as he's spoken of each one receiving a specific measurement of divine grace expressed in gifts, now he speaks of a variety of offices or leaders that he has given to the church. And so he's given each, to each believer particular gifts for the good of the church, and he's given to the church corporately particular people, particular leaders for the good of the church collectively. And so he has us here uh, focus on uh, these leaders and the ways that God intends to use leaders in the church to accomplish his purposes. Now, we need to not get too hung up on the particulars of these Uh, Because he's focusing on people and leaders and offices and not on particular gifts, we could, uh, again, there's lots of rabbit trails available, we could talk a long time about what is meant by apostle and prophet and evangelist and should every individual church have its own apostle and its own prophet and its own evangelist, is that what he intends? And I've read books to that effect that actually argue from this verse that every church needs to have one of those are four offices that each church should have. I don't think so. I think apostles, for example, played a pretty unique role in history. I think the apostles were the witnesses to Christ and his resurrection and the ones that he entrusted to carry the gospel to the very first generation of people to hear that gospel. And they died and there are no more apostles. That's the way that that I think. So I don't think we ought to be looking for, okay, who are we going to appoint as the apostle for Imprint Community Church? I don't think that's the idea. I don't think that's what he means. So in this way, I think he's referring to the apostles who lived and witnessed to Christ and entrusted to us this body of revelation, right? The, the, the word of God that comes down to us from apostles and prophets. And, and you could think differently about evangelists and certainly shepherd teachers, pastor teachers. That's something that we see repeated throughout the New Testament as an office uh, in, in the local church. We don't need to, to, to put too much pressure on this text to answer questions that I don't think is intended to answer. At any rate, so, so Christ gives leaders to his church. Christ gives leaders to his church. And the work of the leaders in the church is for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Do you see that? In verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So... We should not regard these leaders, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, we should not regard these leaders as the ones who are doing ministry, right? Christ gives pastors to the church to do the work of ministry. That's a reasonably common, a fairly common understanding, at least in practice, of what that means. And so the church pays the pastor and the pastor does the work. That's kind of how often uh, churches approach that. This is not the case. 
And often, I should say, pastors are, uh, are happy to sort of facilitate that and go, okay, I'll just do it myself. <laughs> right? um, that's not what the pastors and leaders in the church are supposed to be doing. And that's not how the members of the church are supposed to be receiving the ministry of the pastor. The work of the leaders in the church is the equipping of the saints. That's you. That's every member for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Who builds up the body of Christ? Not just the pastors, not just the teachers, evangelists, prophets, etc., but each member. Remember, we're focusing here on each one. The emphasis that Paul has given here, verse 7, his grace to each one. And at the very end of verse 16, when each part works properly and does its part. So, the leaders of the church are intended to equip the members of the church. Let's do a little bit of a word study. I don't do this very often, but I found this helpful in thinking about the work of equipping that these leaders in the church are supposed to do. It comes from the Greek katartizo. It's a fun word to say, katartizo. A couple of other New Testament occurrences shed some light on what it means. Matthew 4, 21, we see James and John in their boat, their fishing boat, and they are mending broken nets. And the verb for mending is katartizo. They are equipping. They are mending the nets. That is, they're repairing something that's not working right. In 1 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul speaks of his ministry there um, as supplying what was lacking in their faith. And that word supplying is katartizo. So they are equipping the saints in Thessalonica by supplying something that was missing, something that was lacking. And so you have at least a couple of ways that this word, uh, a couple of senses that this word has. The equipping in chapter 4, verse 12, could have the sense of repairing something that's broken and the sense of strengthening something that's missing. So if something is not working right in the church, God has given, Christ has given leaders, pastors to the church to address the things that aren't working. The mending of the net, if you will, and to supply that is to strengthen what is lacking and so these are some ways that uh, the church may uh, or that the leaders of the church are intended to equip the people of god listen to this uh reflection by john piper he says each of you of course he's speaking to his own church but he says each of you is personally gifted by christ with varied grace and yet not so perfectly that you are not in need of fixing and supply by apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. No one may say, I am gifted and graced by Christ himself. I have no need of apostolic authority, which I believe comes through the New Testament. Or prophetic encouragement, or evangelistic training, or pastoral nurture, or human teachers to apply the Bible to my life. This text makes plain that all of you are gifted with a measure of grace, and all of you are in some measure lacking the improvement of grace. The one proves that you are vitally needed by the church, and the other proves that the church is vitally needed by you. So I think if we think of the leaders of the church as equipping the saints in these ways, repairing what's broken and strengthening what's lacking, we get an idea of what the role of the pastor and the, uh, the other leaders in the church is supposed to be, and what your role is to be. Your job is not to just sit back and receive the ministry of the pastors and leaders. Your role is to be equipped and use your gifts in one another's lives to help each other follow Jesus, to help each other grow in the faith.
Now, we have some challenges here. Just culturally, um, the, the American church generally is over-programmed and over-professionalized. Uh, Americans are consumers by birth and by nature, right? And we naturally kind of carry that mindset over into our spiritual lives and religious communities. And so we tend to think of church members serving the church basically like this. What are the programs offered by the church? What are the positions in the programs that need to be filled? And what are the ways that I'm gifted uh, or interested in that might fit one of those openings, one of the position needs in the programs of the church? Now, don't get me wrong. That's not all bad, right? Certainly churches make strategic decisions about disciple making and set goals and offer some programs in ministry to attempt to accomplish those goals. And certainly members of the church should be equipped and deployed in those programs for the good of those who participate in them. So I'm not suggesting that it's wrong to think uh, about serving in the church like that. Merely that it by itself is inadequate. We should think beyond what program can I fit into with my gifts. We should think more what person or people in the church can I serve with the way that God has entrusted grace to me. I think that sort of programmatic, consumeristic mentality not only leads to unhealthy attitudes about church life, like the church should be catering to my needs and preferences, and I'm going to choose a church based on which one provides the services I like the best. It's kind of the way that Americans tend to approach finding a church. But it also breeds a deadly dependence upon the paid professionals, right? The, the pastor who gets the salary, let's just leave the work to him because that's what we pay him for. And therefore, the members of the church that, and the strength of the church itself will atrophy and wither on the vine because the ministers, the, the pastors, the leaders aren't supposed to do all the work. We're supposed to equip the saints to do the work of ministry among themselves, so that the body builds itself up, not so that the pastor builds up the church. So the work of the church leaders is not to do the work of ministry, it is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. So we should ask ourselves questions like, how much time and energy and attention am I spending on other church members during a typical week or month? Do you find yourself praying for other people in the church? Do you... Uh, periodically reach out in a text message or a phone call to other people in the church? Do you think about ways you might encourage or pray for or equip somebody else in the church? These are the kinds of ways we should be thinking. How do we strengthen one another in our pursuit of Christ? Christ gives gifts to his church. Christ gives leaders to his church. And finally, Christ gives maturity. All of this is for the maturing of the people of God. Christ gives maturity. And we can see in verse 13, he says, there's a goal here, right? There's a, there's a journey we're on until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. All right? Until we all attain. So we're all on this journey together and we each play a role in equipping and, and strengthening one another with the leaders equipping you to do that together. And we're all on this journey of attaining the unity. There, we're back to that theme of, these, of all these verses. The oneness of the people of God. The unity of the body of Christ. And he expresses that unity in three phrases. Number one, unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. 
unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. I think that means basically doctrinal agreement. That means we grow into an understanding of what the Christian faith teaches, of what the Word of God tells us, of who God is, of who Christ is, of what the gospel means, of how we live it out. We grow together in understanding so that we attain unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. And then two other phrases, to mature manhood and then to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And I think those two phrases are very closely related, to mature manhood and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. If we think of Christ as the full, complete, mature man, then the church is in the process, by God's grace at work, in his, by His Spirit, of growing into the maturity that Christ Himself displays. So that mature manhood, I think, is really a picture of Christ and his maturity and his fullness. And then that, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ is our incremental growth toward Christ-likeness. So in other words, the goal of all of this is to mature, to grow up, to become more like Christ. And doesn't that match what he tells, what Paul tells us in Romans 8, 28 and 29, that he's predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what he's after. He wants a church that looks like Christ. And the way that he does that is by leaders equipping saints and saints doing the work of ministry. And so that we all together grow toward that maturity, that Christ likeness. And he tells us what that maturity looks like in a negative way by basically warning us against immaturity. Don't be like, specifically he says, like children. Children, we love you. I don't think he means to insult you. I certainly don't mean to insult you. But children have a lot to learn, right? Children are in a process of growing and beginning to understand how the world works and what's good and what's bad and what's right and what's wrong. And so children are impressionable. Children can, will, will often believe whatever you tell them if you tell it to them sort of urgently and sincerely enough, right? Uh, and so certainly some children have been led astray into, into bad ideas and believing wrong things because somebody told them this is the way that it is because children are, uh, are impressionable like that. And so he tells us here not to be like that. Look at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Benjamin Merkel calls this a childlike gullibility and lack of experiential knowledge. So if we are not mature in Christ, if we are not growing up into this unity of the knowledge of the Son of God and this this measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, then we will be those who are impressionable to the ideologies and ideas and beliefs of the world around us. And he gives three particular sort of dangers here. Every wind of doctrine. There's even in the name of Christ doctrines that float by that you should reject. By human cunning. Again, just the sort of the way that that people can can craft words and sentences to make something sound plausible and even good and, and laudable. And craftiness and deceitful schemes, I think he's referring to Satan's schemes here, personally. 
I think he means there the deceitful schemes that the enemy uses to infuse uh, the world in which we live with falsehoods, with false teachings, false ideas about God and life and eternity. And so if we are not growing into maturity in Christ, then we will be blown about by anything that comes our way, by the loudest voices that, uh, that are shouting in our direction. We'll just go with whatever they say. If we are immature in Christ, we will be gullible enough to buy whatever the world is selling. In the absence of developed Christian belief and conviction, we will listen to whoever's voice is the loudest in our ear. Now, I don't know if you've seen uh, these signs that have begun popping up in people's yards with something like a, a creed of kind of a progressive creed almost. It says, there's different versions of it, but one of them that I've seen a lot says this. In this house, we believe black lives matter, women's rights are human rights, no human is illegal, science is real, love is love, kindness is everything. You seen those? Every phrase on that sign has embedded in it an element of truth, even a, a biblical principle that we might celebrate. So if we're to be unthinking or undiscerning, we might see a sign like that and go, yeah, I, I agree with that. But divorced from any biblical context and even worse, infused with culturally loaded words and phrases, it actually seeks to advance a so-called progressive agenda, one that in many respects is antithetical to God's word and a Christian vision of human flourishing. It takes discernment to see that. And to understand why and how those particular phrases fall short of a biblical worldview. So we need to be careful not just to buy whatever we see. Even if we can look through what's there to a, a kernel of truth. And in fact, the kernel of truth we find there may be a starting point for engaging with those ideas. And, and having conversations with those who celebrate those kinds of distinctives. Well, let, let's talk about what you mean by that. Right? I think I can affirm that statement if we mean this. And maybe we have a doorway to talk about the gospel and, and God's word. There's one of my favorite movies uh, is, is called The American President from the mid-1990s, an Aaron Sorkin script. And uh, <clears throat> it's a story of, of a president uh, whose wife has died from cancer and he begins dating uh, a lobbyist. Um, and so uh, obviously his relationship with this woman is all very public and scandalous and there's election season going on. And so his opponents, you know, slinging mud at him and all kinds of stuff. But he's been very quiet. He's not speaking out about what's going on uh, here and hasn't responded to the, you know, attacks by his opponent and all these things. And his, his sort of advisors are pleading with him, you've got to do something. Like, you're not saying anything. People need leadership. And in the absence of leadership, they will follow whoever is talking to them the loudest. They said something very similar to that. And he uses this, one of his advisors uses this analogy of, of crawling through the sand. People are so thirsty for genuine leadership that they'll crawl through the sand toward an oasis. And when they get there and they find that it's a mirage, they'll drink the sand because they're so desperate for leadership. And the president responds to him this way. People don't drink the sand because they're thirsty. They drink the sand because they don't know the difference. It's like this dark moment. There's like thunder strikes and like, ooh, dark music plays. You're like, is that really its view of the American people? Right? It's, it's pretty dark. Uh, but the, the, point, the point is, people can be gullible, right? People will believe whatever they're sold if it's sold earnestly and sincerely and loudly enough. 
And so he's kind of uh, responding to that. So surely growing up into Christ, it back to our context, means we'll know the difference. We need to be able to tell the difference between the true gospel and a false gospel. Between a true statement of of God's design and a false statement. Between a true vision, a biblical vision of human flourishing and a false ideal that actually leads to human destruction. We need to know the difference. The alternative he gives us in verse 15 is this. Rather, so no longer children, no longer tossed about by waves of doctrine, and the cunning of humans and craftiness of deceitfulness. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. So the alternative route for Christians to being blown about by every wind of doctrine is speaking the truth in love. Now, often we use this phrase. It's a good biblical phrase, and we'll, we'll, we'll pull it out of our uh, mental Rolodex at times. And we often mean something like this. Telling someone a truth that's offensive, but doing it with gentleness, right? I'm speaking the truth in love, which means I'm about to insult you, but I'm going to do it in a soft voice, right? That's not what Paul means by this. When he says we're speaking the truth in love, he means that we are committing ourselves to the truth. That is the body of truth comprising Christian teaching and Christ's gospel. And we are speaking it to one another repeatedly, persistently, persuasively. So that we come to believe it more deeply and stand on it more firmly. He is interested in the maturing of the body of Christ. And the way that we help one another mature is by speaking the truth to each other. By having conversations about what's true and biblical and right. And what's worldly and what's amiss. We should have conversations like that. And we might disagree and have to wrestle through to the other side until we understand one another. But we should speak the truth to one another in love. Because it is loving to challenge one another to think rightly and to grow in our understanding of Christ and his word. Through all of this, all of this whole passage, the individual gifts that are given, the leaders that are given to the church, and the maturity that uh, results, all of it is from Christ. Over and over again, it's Christ who gives the gift. In verse 15 again, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Verse 16 begins, from whom Christ, from whom the whole body grows, right? The whole body makes the body grow. It is Christ who gives the growth. All a church member can do is to seek to work properly together. That phrase in verse 16, with each, every joint with which it is equipped, I think that's each member of the church, when every part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The members of the church are to seek to work properly together and plead with God to grant the growth in grace and maturity that this passage tells us about. And yet, while Christ is the ultimate agent in the building of his church, remember Matthew 16, 18, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Members of the church have an active role to play in its maturation. It's growing up. The whole body makes the body grow. That's kind of a funny phrase, but look at, looking at verse 16. It says, from whom the whole body, and then you've got some phrases in between there, 
describing it. But the, the, the sentence completes itself down at the end where it says, makes the body grow. So the whole sentence is this, or the phrase is this, from whom the whole body makes the body grow. So what makes the body grow? The body does. But how does the body make itself grow? It's from Christ. It's gifted from Christ as we do what he's called us to in building one another up. And isn't this how it works with a normal, healthy human body? Think specifically of the body of a child, right? They're they're designed to, to grow. When the parts of a child's body are healthy and they're functioning properly, the body causes itself to grow. That's precisely what the individual parts are working together to do, to cause the body's growth. And in the same way, as we look to Christ for strength and wisdom, and as we encourage each other and do the work of ministry among one another, having these conversations, speaking the truth to one another in love, pointing one another to Christ and his gospel over and over again, we the body begins to build itself up. The body begins to grow toward Christ-likeness, toward maturity. This is what he calls us to do. So how is the church to be, to live into this oneness that Christ has purchased? By, by building up one another, by using the varied gifts that God has given us for the benefit of others in church and the collective whole, by the leaders of the church equipping, working to equip the saints to do the work of ministry, not just taking it upon themselves to do it all, but to give ministry to others within the church, and by all of us together speaking the truth in love, growing in our understanding of God and his word, and growing toward Christ-likeness. By way of confession here, let me kind of conclude with, with this. Um, as I've reflected on this text this week, uh, particularly the, the verses about the role of church's leaders in equipping the saints, I'm convicted that I have been guilty of taking on too much and of sort of uh, assuming too many of the burdens of ministry uh, that Christ intends to be carried out by by you, by other members in the church. I think this journey of church planting particularly, I think pastoral ministry generally is fraught with this, but church planting maybe in particular, um, it, 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 the challenges of this, this ministry have often made the simplest course of action for me seem to be, I'll just do it myself. Right? There's so much to do, it's just easier if I just do it. Instead of trying to explain it to somebody, or rope somebody else into it, or develop a new process or system or whatever. I'll just do it. And so I think a lot of times, that has been my default as sort of solo pastor and the planter of the church. It's like, I'll just take care of it. And what happens over time is, there's too much on my shoulders. I'm doing too much. I'm just doing too much. And members of the church, I think generally, would probably happily do more. But I'm like, nah, I'm good. I got it. I, I can handle it over here. Um, and that, that is a, that's on me. That's my own um, failures as a leader. With, with my job being not just to do the work of ministry, but to equip you to do the work of ministry. I want you to know that I believe that the Lord wants us to work on this together. As he may be speaking to your heart, come and do the work I'm calling you to do for the building up of this church. He's at the same time speaking to mine, equip them. Give ministry to them so that they may grow up toward maturity. 
I hope you'll bear with me in that and that you'll take this journey with me as we work together to, to grow toward the maturity that Christ intends for his people to have. And it comes from him. We plead with him to grant that growth and grace.